For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Banna. So uh, it's kind of her to come up the up the road here uh, to Chicago, as it were. Um, Florence is also uh, a longtime environmental activist. She was a professional botanist. Uh, She's been very involved in numbers of environmental action campaigns uh, and knows a lot about conservation. Uh, Florence is probably best known as co-editor of a really uh, wonderful, important book, the Hidden Lamp, which has, uh, I think it's a hundred stories of um, women, important women, or I don't know about important, wonderful <laughs> women teachers in Buddhism, going back to Shakyamuni Buddha's time in India, in China, Korea, Japan, and even in the United States. And in addition, that book has, uh, it's a wonderful resource generally, but it has comments by modern American women teachers. So I highly recommend that book, The Hidden Lamp. And Florence has been here a number of times before and will be again, but I'm really happy to have her here tonight. Welcome, Florence. Thank you, old friend Tygen. It's wonderful to be here again. I kind of feel like the the whole Zoom room is old friends. I recognize... I think most of you. So it's great to be with you again. And um, I hope you're enjoying this beautiful spring evening. I imagine up in Chicago, like here, the, the spring is accelerating like some kind of, I don't know what, uh, you know, fast forward movie or something like that. Every time I walk outside, there's, more flowers. So hope you're enjoying it too. Tonight, what I'd like to talk about, uh, the title uh, that I sent into Taigen weeks ago was uh, Only a Buddha and a Buddha, which is uh, also the title of a uh, well-known fascicle of Dogen. Many of you probably know that. And, um, um, I'm going to, this talk will be about that fascicle and not <laughs> about that fascicle. <laughs> so uh, it will touch upon it, but it's going to cover a lot of other territory over, over our time together. I'm going to get the clock here. There we go. So I, um, I want to start with uh, a section from that fascicle. This is from the, an earlier translation than the most recent one. This is from Moon in a Drew Drop. Many of you may have this book. So the fascicle begins with some lines that are uh, um, a kind of reflection from the Skillful Means chapter of the Lotus Sutra. And I'll just read that little paragraph, but then I'm going to skip to something else uh, that I think sheds light on this 
on what I want to talk about tonight. So the fascicle begins saying, Buddha Dharma cannot be known by a person. For this reason, since olden times, no ordinary person has realized Buddha Dharma. So practitioners of the uh, no practitioner of the lesser vehicles has mastered Buddha Dharma. Because it is realized by Buddhas alone, it is said, only a Buddha and a Buddha can thoroughly master it. A Buddha and a Buddha. And then I wanted to read this part, which is in the sixth part of this fascicle. All Buddhas of the three worlds have already practiced, attained the way, and completed realization. How should we understand that those Buddhas are practicing together with us? First of all, examine a Buddha's practice. A Buddha's practice is to practice in the same manner as the entire universe and all beings. If it is not practiced with all beings, it is not a Buddha's practice. This being so, all Buddhas from the moment of attaining realization realize and practice the way together with the entire universe and all beings. Do not think that Buddhas are other than you. Let me read that again. Do not think that Buddhas are other than you. According to this teaching, when all Buddhas of the three worlds arouse the thought of enlightenment and practice, they never exclude our body and mind. To doubt this is to slander the Buddhas of the three worlds. So no slandering. Some of the precepts. I think that there is a tendency in all of us in our culture, to see the path as a kind of solitary, heroic journey, right? We're all familiar with Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey. This is our idea of the spiritual path. If you close your eyes and say the, you know, say the, hear the word spiritual path, do you see it like a whole bunch of people on that path? Or do you just see one solitary figure headed towards the peaks Right? This, these are our images. But what if the path includes everything and everyone? That everyone and everything, including all the Buddhas of past, present, and future, as uh, Dogen tells us, and remember to think of this otherwise is to slander the Buddhas, are, are actually with us, practicing with us. We are not separate from them. I think that, the, so when I, um, I've been recently studying this fascicle and I was really, really struck by this. Because you might have noticed that this practice is a challenging one, right? Life, actually, not just practice, life is a challenging one. And so if we also think that we are doing this all alone, essentially, like fundamentally, then it's really hard. And so what supports us in our practice? 
And when I read this section, I, I was just really struck by what would my practice be like if I believed this? That because the, you know, the Buddhas make a vow, right, to, to practice and awaken, practice with and awaken all beings, how is it that I am not included in that? So am I, am, are the Buddhas right with me as I practice? And what about the whole rest of the world, the, the mountains and rivers and the great earth, the plants and the trees? As, uh, that's a quote from the old woman's relatives, the koan that I wrote about for The Hidden Lamp. Uh, are they also practicing with us? So those are the, that's kind of the big view. And I just invite you in your own practice to explore this a bit. Like, how do I understand my practice, right? That's what we say. Our, our practice, my practice. You go in to see your teacher and he, he might say, or she might say to you, how is your practice? <laughs> and you could say, well, it's so with all Buddhas and the whole world, entire earth. <laughs> She'll be so impressed. And um, I, I think that we can, so I, now what I want to do is I just kind of want to bring this down out of that very kind of absolute realm into particulars. And uh, one story that came to mind as uh, for my own life, as I was thinking about this today is, oh my goodness, sorry. That's m- my mother trying to call me. See, I am practicing with all beings, including my mother. <laughs> and I don't have a way to turn that off. Can you all hear it? Do you hear a little ringing? Yeah. Okay. So uh, this could be interesting. She could call back. Uh, she has dementia, so she may call back many times. <laughs> I'll see if I can get it off. Let me see. I think I can, though. Let's see. Okay, we'll try that. Hopefully that will make it go away. Um, but she is practicing with me, obviously. And actually, it's pretty funny because what I was going to talk about is uh, the idea of um, our lineage, supporting us. So, uh, of course, a lot of you are wearing rakasus. So you received lineage papers as part of your ceremonies of various kinds. And they, of course, it has the line, right, going all the way from the Buddha through all these different teachers, 90-some generations, and then to you, and then back up to the Buddha, right? It's in this wonderful circulation system. And uh, years ago, I was doing a long retreat at Spirit Rock Meditation Center, a Vipassana retreat center in California, two-month silent retreat. And they have this beautiful little building there that's a tiny octagonal hut. And inside the hut are photographs of the important teachers of the teachers at Spirit Rock. And they don't have such a strong sense of lineage, so... Like one teacher, and all this is true for us anyway, right? A lot of us have more than one teacher, although we might have one formal teacher who gave us the precepts. So for the teachers at Spirit Rock, there are many teachers, and they're from many different traditions. And I found myself really drawn to this little hut. And in fact, I took it upon myself to be the um, sweeper of the hut because things would blow in leaves and stuff like that. And I would, so every day I would go and there was a broom there and I would sweep it and spend time with these, uh, these teachers. And it just really struck me 
like viscerally, that the only reason that we have this beautiful practice, the Buddha Dharma, is because quite literally, somebody passed it on to somebody else, who passed it on to somebody else, who passed it on to somebody else, who then passed it to teachers that we encountered in whatever way we did, you know, in a book or uh, an actual human being. And, and those people inspired us to enter into the practice or to, to continue. And we are, we are now also uh, ancestors, right? Because we're practicing. We are inspiring people in our lives in various ways, no matter what our practice is. And we're, we're, we're the next link of keeping the Buddha Dharma literally alive. And of course, if for some reason there was like a, all the practitioners disappeared and all we had the, were the books, it wouldn't be the same. I mean, I'm very inspired by Dogen, but, um, you know, it's not the same as seeing, uh, seeing a teacher move across the room. So, so that's one of the ways that the Buddhas support us and this whole lineage supports us. And then, of course, as I mentioned, the, the way that the world supports us, right? I, I, um, I do this funny little thing with this Jap- Japan house here, which is a Japanese cultural center. I, um, on f- the first Friday of the month at 10 a.m., they do a live stream of me sitting for 15 minutes out in their garden. And that's all that happens. And it's actually wildly popular. People love it. <laughs> it's just, and you'd think it might be a still image, right? We sit pretty still in Zazen, except like a leaf will fall down or there'll be a bird call or whatever. And uh, I've been doing this. I did it all through the winter. And uh, this last one, which I recorded a little early, this, this is the only one that won't be live because this Friday is my birthday and I don't want to be, I'm going to be out of town. I decided I would, instead of starting in a sitting position, I would actually demonstrate the bowing to the cushion and bowing away. And I always think of that as, um, and I mean, I think about it in different ways, but the way I talked about it on Friday is that, um, you know, you're, you're bowing to this great intention that runs through all, all beings to wake up. That's, that's the bow to the cushion. And then the bow away is bowing to, to this vast world that's also practicing and helping, helping, supporting you in waking up. So uh, anyway, it was kind of sweet to share our bowing practice with whoever it is who tunes in to the, <laughs> that little 15-minute moment. That is all a sort of introduction to what I really want to talk about today, which is spiritual friendship which can be about teachers sometimes. I think I I would put our relationship with teachers kind of under that umbrella of spiritual friendship, but I also think that it takes uh, many forms and and can be deeply supportive to our lives. So I want to open up this area of spiritual friendship for us and, and see where we go. And I'd like to begin, um, so, so I want to talk about it, you know, how, it's, how spiritual friendship, you know, is there a difference between spiritual friendship and other kinds of friendship? How do you, how do you recognize 
that's what's going on in a relationship, uh, you know, and what it can mean for our practice in life. And I would like to dedicate this talk right now to all the people who are not in this shared space together, who have supported you in your practice, who have been your spiritual friends, whatever form that took. So this, this talk is dedicated to them because you probably wouldn't be here without them. And I want to start with just a, a brief um, guided meditation to bring those others here with us. So uh, please, if you would, close your eyes. Just feel your breath and body as you sit here. And bring to mind a person in your life who has been an inspiration and support to you on the path. This is ideally a person where the tangles are minimal, where there's a clear sense of this person as a spiritual teacher and benefactor. But not necessarily a formal teacher. Could be anybody in your life. Bring them right in front of you as clearly as you can in your mind's eye. See their face. This person can be living or passed away. Consider their gifts to you, their love for you. Now, I invite you to bring your attention to your heart. Feel what you feel there when you think of this person. If it feels right, you can offer your silent thanks or an inner bow to this person for their friendship and inspiration. And when you're ready, you can open your eyes and come back into the room. And I just want to say at this point that I think that there are some people whose um, lives are such that perhaps no one came to mind when you did this practice um, and that um, you might have to look a little deeper. You know, one in the, in the stories, uh, in the Zen stories, some great teachers and students are together for decades practicing together in the same monastery and others for days or even moments. So if no one came to mind for you immediately, uh, you might consider whether there's someone that you've encountered that um, maybe it wasn't for so long and um, has has been that for you. But I think most of us can pretty easily contact uh, feelings of gratitude. And isn't it quite remarkable that most of us have been 
blessed in some way by a person or maybe several people or even many people who have uh, supported us in these ways. So I think that there's this funny thing, and I don't know what it is, but I think that we walk together with fellow travelers, very particular human beings where mysteriously we recognize them and they recognize us. And I would venture that for most of us at some point in our lives, this kind of friendship has been or is critical. A friendship where you are truly seen and where you know that you don't walk alone. This could be a friend, it could be a teacher, it could be a peer, somebody older or younger, somebody close to you, or as I said, someone you meet very briefly, it hardly matters. And uh, there is actually a term for this kind of friendship from the Celtic um, Christian tradition as well. It's called Anamkara. And uh, John O'Donohue, the poet, wrote about that and said, in the Celtic tradition, there is a beautiful understanding of love and friendship, the idea of soul love. The old Gaelic term for this is Anamkara. Anam is the Gaelic word for soul and kara is the word for friend. So Anamkara is the Celtic, in the Celtic world, was the soul friend. In the early Celtic church, a person who acted as a teacher, companion, or spiritual guide was called an Anamkara. It originally referred to someone to whom you confessed, revealing the hidden intimacies of your life. With the Anamkara, you could share your innermost self, your mind, and your heart. And... I'm sure many of you are familiar with um, teachings from uh, early Buddhism about the uh, Kalyanamita. Kalyanamita are the spiritual friends. And in some of the uh, Theravadan traditions, a teacher is also referred to as a Kalyanamita, but it can also be a, um, a fellow practitioner as a spiritual friend. And uh, this might be familiar to you from the Suttas, Ananda, Buddha's attendant, had spent the day in solitude and in the late afternoon he came and told the Buddha that he had been meditating through the day and had had a great insight. He said, it seems to me that half of the holy life is association with good and noble friends. Maybe you know what the Buddha said afterwards. The Buddha replied, not so, Ananda. Do not say that, Ananda. It is the whole of this holy life, this friendship, companionship, and association with the good. That's sometimes translated as sangha, but I actually think it's, it's powerful to hear it. This is, this is, I think, a more formal translation, and to hear it to be about noble friends. And it's a koan, right? How could this be the whole of the holy life? not something to just uh, pass over lightly, to really consider what does this mean? And is it related to only a Buddha and a Buddha? So one of the things about um, spiritual friendship that I have found in my life is that an ordinary friendship tends to rest on things like living in the same town or shared experiences or um, shared interests. But a a spiritual friend often has a a different quality. 
um, you might meet across really vast differences, actually, not necessarily similarities. Um, one of the one of my important spiritual friends was uh, a woman whose name was Willie Cooper, and she was an elderly Lummi Indian woman who to the Lummi Nation out in Washington State, who was married at fourteen and had nine living children, 13 pregnancies, uh, and was um, deeply, deeply spiritual. Anything spiritual she wanted to be part of it, whether it was a a tent revival in the woods or practicing the ancient Siawan religion of the Lummi. And we loved each other, I swear, from the moment we met. And I was privileged to spend a number of years in association with her. And, um, and we just knew each other. Um, my brother-in-law is um, Ugandan. And the same thing happened when we met for the first time. We just, we could, even though his life experience and mine are as really radically different as two lives could be, still we recognize something. So I wanted to share a koan with you. And um, there's so much that could be said about this koan, and I really invite you to um, potentially explore it a little bit on your own as well. It's a little hard to find. And in fact, I don't know, Tygen, I couldn't, I couldn't, I've struggled with this before. I cannot find the original source of it. Um, But um, it's sometimes called uh, Tortoise Mountain Wakes Up. And um, it is from the kind of classic era of Chinese Zen, Chan. And the, it's about two friends, um, Shui Fang and uh, Yantu. And Shui Fang became extremely famous as a Chan teacher. But at the time of this story, they were both students on, on pilgrimage. And this is a short version of the story. Yantu and Shui Fang were snowed in on Tortoise Mountain. They were out on pilgrimage and uh, got stuck in this little hut. Day after day, Yantu slept while Zhuifang sat up and meditated. And here was the thing. Zhuifang was the older of the two, but Yantu was kind of like a Zen prodigy. Like he just got this stuff really fast. So all he's doing, he's just napping. And there's Zhuifang, yeah, right? You know, sitting there, you know, really intense. And finally, on the third day, Yantu sat up and said, Get some sleep. What do you think you are, a roadside shrine? <laughs> Love that line. And Zhuifang touched his chest and said, my heart isn't at peace. I can't fool myself. And in the longer version of the story, um, uh, Yantu asked him to, Zhuifang to tell him about um, his experiences. And he tells all these stories about meeting these different teachers and and having, you know, insights of various kinds. And it just goes kind of on and on. And finally, Yantu gave a great shout. He was famous for his shouts. And he said, I'm going to do this. I have no idea what this will sound like on, you know, Zoom. Ha! Don't you know that the family treasure doesn't come in through the gate? He said, Let the teaching flow out from your own breast to cover the sky and the earth. Zhuifang was suddenly enlightened 
and cried out and danced around, actually, in the longer version of the story. Today, Tortoise Mountain has finally awakened. So here are two friends, you know, just traveling together. And one out of this great compassion, not a formal teaching relationship at all, the younger one, helps his friend to find freedom, helps his friend to uh, finally be at peace in his heart. So I just love the palpable love between these two. And the beauty of this response, right? Not to be looking outside, outside your own body and mind for awakening. And it's also, it's not like a little touchy-feely kind of comfortable love, right? It's kind of fierce. Sometimes our, the, what friends do to help us wake up is not sweet. It can be fierce. I can remember a long time ago, someone I was working with got mad at me and said, this was in, in, as a botanist, and said, you are so arrogant. <laughs> and it blew me away because actually at that moment, I knew he was right. I was this young, arrogant thing, right? He'd been around for a long time doing work for the Forest Service, and I just thought I knew 10 times more than he did. It woke me up. So how do we wake each other up? And um, I, some of you may also know the story, and I'm watching the time here. I don't want to go too long. But the story of um, uh, Buddha and uh, um, his foster mother, Mahapajapati, who ended up being the founder of the um, Order of Nuns. And the Buddha kept telling her she wanted to ordain and at that point, there was an order of monks, but not of nuns. And, and um, she kept asking, and he kept saying no. And finally, she led this huge group of women 100 miles on the roads. Uh, they shaved their own heads. They put on robes, and they walked to the Buddha, and they asked again. And he, he said no again and, um, and said, woman, you know, don't ask me anymore. And Ananda pulls him aside, you know, his attendant, his like unenlightened attendant, right? And says, but wait a minute. I mean, she suckled you at her own breast. And aren't women just as capable of enlightenment as men? And Buddha's like, yeah, that's all true. Well, maybe you should do this. And so the, the Buddha did. So there's a, there is a, a nunnery in Japan that does a ceremony every year. Um, thanking Ananda for uh, helping to wake up the Buddha to something very important. I really can say for myself that um, I don't think I would be alive today without this kind of friendship. There were times in my life, especially as a young person, where I was walking the edge. I was not sure I wanted to be in this world. And there was uh, one particular person who um, saw me, and that made all the difference. So just to remember, to reach out to others who are on the path, and we are not walking this path alone, but you may know somebody or meet someone who thinks that they are walking alone. And if you reach out your hand, you might save a life. So let's keep it up and... Never forget what a gift it is to have that kind of connection.
And I just want to close with a poem. Um, it's by Sharon Olds, the poet Sharon Olds. And it's actually um, to another poet, Gabriel Hirsch. So in a way, this is kind of a poetic equivalent of um, Tortoise Mountain. Song to Gabriel Hirsch. We first met in your home, outside, outside summer fire, inside Texas summer ice. I was wiped out by travel and illness lying on a couch, which made me a good height for you to talk to. That I had a son with the same name as you struck you with wonder. Me too. One name, one label, two beings. We said to each other, I think, whatever came into our minds, put there by what the other had just said. As if we threw one by one, taking turns, those intensely dried paper flowers of my childhood into a glass of water and watched them uncurl fast, uneven and bright and tossed another we were in the present moment so intensely in it, everything outside it took a step back out of the light, then another step back. And that was where we met next, years later, in that light. You were so intent, alert, alive, as if in the grip of a fierce brightness and moving around in it quick in its grip. I wish I had been there last week to hear your best friend who had met you eye to eye and what in your childhood was the future. Talk of how extraordinary you were, my almost unknown dear, your mother's and father's dearest. You were wearing a cape that first day, a cloak of many colors, a cloud, your hand on the shoulder of the wild creatures of your life. Thank you. Thank you so much, Florence, um, for your talk on spiritual friendship. Uh, we have time uh, for discussion. Uh, if anyone has comments, questions, responses, please feel free. Especially if you have a story of such a friend. I'm sorry, Wade, maybe you could help me call on people. Oh, okay. Don't see anybody raising their hand. Oh, please don't be shy. You all know each other. <laughs> and me. Yes, Matt. I'm just going to start out. I don't want to unmute myself. I, my kids are watching cartoons in the backgrounds. Um, I do have a, a story. Um, the person who I was, who I had in mind when you were doing the guided meditation, one time she said, um, quit being so effing intellectual. <laughs> uh, I remember that moment. And that was actually a pretty pivotal moment in my practice. So that was a similar moment for me as well. So thank you for your time. <laughs> thank you. Um, I've been <clears throat> struck before by um, the 
lineage that that you listed. This idea that um, you know the the warm hand to warm hand transmission for the past you know twenty five hundred years is just kind of remarkable to think about. Um, and that never, I feel like that's true in, in Christianity too. But when I, when I was a practicing Christian, it never, it never struck me that way. Uh, for whatever reason, I think Zen has an emphasis on it. Um, and really it's kind of awe-inspiring. Uh, and it, it reminds me, you, you being a, a botanist, um, and, and Laurel as well will appreciate this. It, it reminds me of the natural world so much that we only have the nature that we have because every generation has managed to produce another generation. And at no point did they just skip one. Do they just take a generation off? <laughs> Cause the, they, they wouldn't be around. Uh, so it's the, the transmission of the Dharma um, feels similar to me. Um, in, in it's kind of like a, the procreation of a species, um, the creating its own progeny. Uh, and in that way, it feels um, like very, very intimate, uh, but also very fragile. I'm not making a point here, um, but that's what I have to say. You are making a point. I think that's wonderful. And, and, this, and, and to really remember that we are, we are the next generation. I, I imagine, I don't know this for sure, Tygen, but you'd give the second lineage paper now too, the one of the women in the circle. Oh, you're, you're muted. Yes. In, uh, we haven't done a, a lay ordination in a little while, but yes, I give a, the, uh, I think, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if, if it's the Norman's version that we do, we, we, we chant, we have a chant of women ancestors as well, but yes, the circle of, of women. Uh, I love that, you know, because we have this kind of, you know, in some ways, very Confucian hierarchy, not hierarchy, but, you know, linear, um, somewhat magical and mythical, but linear version, right, that goes from the Buddha to us. We may not have all the names right, but we know this happened, right, one generation after another. But then for the women, it's, it's, you're in the middle, and it's circular. So it's like being embraced by by all of the women's practice, because so many women are not able to formally um, give transmission to others, and yet their practice has also supported us, and is, I think, more and more. And yes, your book, Hidden Lamp, really shows how uh, so many great women practitioners supported each other and and even the men uh, all through time. And uh, so, so your book is such a treasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, actually, um, there are a lot of um, stories of the uh, women in just the way that Matt was talking about or I was talking about where, the men, where they um, kind of punctured the arrogance and uh, sureness of a, of a monk or even a great teacher. And it's, and sometimes they're playing. Sometimes it's, it's, it's like the two of them are just like in that Sharon Olds poem. They're like tossing something back and forth in play. And it's kind of, it's kind of fierce play. It's like watching cats or dogs play. It's not, it's, uh, you know, it's got a certain intensity to it. 
I love one. There's one where an old woman <laughs> put at the end of it pushes Hakuen, right, the greatest Zen master of his time in in Japan, and says, "I can see you're not enlightened yet." <laughs> So I think laughter is also part of this. Do a whole separate thing on laughter. Laurel. Thank you. Thank you so much for a wonderful talk. Um, I have a story on a different topic that I wanted to tell you. So I moved last year and uh, after being in the same place for 25 years, and I had to get rid of a lot of books. <clears throat> and um, and a few weeks ago, as I was finally getting around to rearrange my books and put them in order, I found that I had two copies of The Hidden Lamp mysteriously and miraculously. They multiplied, even though I had gotten rid of more than half of my books. <laughs> 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 and and so and so a friend um and I gave it to a friend who wasn't sure that he wanted a copy enough to buy one for himself. And I recently heard from him that he was so happy to have it and that it it was his favorite book right now and it wasn't what he thought it was gonna be. It was somehow defended against it before he even opened it. And so I, it was just an odd mystery <laughs> that I what maybe one day I'll figure out. But um, another person is uh, benefiting from your work. So thank you from me and from my friend Stuart. <laughs> thank you. You know, that book, the opening line to our preface to that book is, this is a book of meetings. So... Again, back to the same, only a Buddha and a Buddha. We can't do it alone. And if you look at the koans, this is a really interesting way to look at the koans, is, is how much they are about all of them, virtually all of them, about meetings. Taiga, do you have anything you want to add? Uh, yeah, just that I was um, just thinking as you said that, that it's also a book about intimacy mm-hmm. and how people become, as you said, you know, you were talking about spiritual friends. And I want to try and remember this Celtic word you shared with us for Kalyanamitra or like it, Avamkara, is that right? I'll, I'll write it in the, um, in the chat. And there's actually okay. a book. John John O'Donohue did a book um, on the uh, on this. Oh, Anam with an N, Kara. Mm-hmm. Okay, I heard it wrong. Um, well, yeah. Um, part of this whole thing of uh, teachers and students, and students and students, and teachers and teachers, or whatever practitioners talking together is, you know, we meet in this. Um, I don't know, it's sort of unusual way. I mean, we have these formalities of how we talk to each other, and then we just some, sometimes <laughs> there's an exchange out of, you know, while sweeping or whatever. Um, but uh, there's a kind of 
you were talking about sitting for 15 minutes uh, on camera Friday mornings for <laughs> where you live, where you live. And I, I think that's just lovely. And um, for people watching that, there's nothing said, but somehow, you know, and this is, this is true in, in Zendos too. Uh, I, I don't know if we can achieve this on a zoom page, but um, you know, we have to have to see, but um, I don't know something about how we really get to know each other and ourselves. Uh, so uh, anyway, it's, there's something um, very sweet about this idea of spiritual friends and uh, so I appreciate your talk, share, talking about it with us tonight. Go. Um, as I've been very insular during the pandemic, one of the realizations that came to me, uh, I've been um, feeling regret over places where I haven't entered friendships fully. And one of the insights that came to me was that um, when I think that I'm not of value, I end up treating other people that they're not of value. Mm. Um, I was wondering if you could say anything about that. So, So this is in a situation where you feel that you are not valued by the other and then you don't know. No. When I when I when I personally do not think I'm of value, ah, yes. I, I I I don't enter, and then I devalue them, right, right? In an odd way. Yeah, yeah. I think um, some. I don't know if any of you ever read that. There was a, a psychoanalyst and poet whose name was um, R. D. Lang, and he wrote a book called Knots, K. N. O. T. S. And actually, a lot of the book is about this mm. and how we like shy away from relationship, like these kind of double binds that we put ourselves in, right? Shy away from relationships because I mean, I remember one thing is, you know, I am so unworthy that someone who found me worthy is therefore unworthy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Um, I remember coming across this book as a teen and it was just a revelation to me. (laughs) So, and I think you're right that, that, that's so that's the mirror right that then undervalues or takes away the value of the other um and and honestly i think the um sort of antidote to that is to is to really turn completely towards them right because ultimately it's it's not about you right it's about them who is this human being that's in front of me and, you know, I was just realizing there is something weird about giving this talk at the end of a year of pandemic, <laughs> you know, because I think for a lot of us, our, our friendship life or even just encounter life has narrowed so dramatically. Um, one of my uh, favorite serious games is riding the train, uh, long train rides and discovering who's on the train with me which is just endlessly kind of serendipitous and magical. And like, I meet people I would just never, ever meet under any other circumstances. And of course, 
I, I did ride a train this year, but I was like locked in a compartment <laughs> the entire time. <laughs> so I think, um, you know, as we, as we sort of re-enter maybe slowly, you know, more ordinary interactions, perhaps we can be more open, maybe more appreciative of the, of the preciousness of those encounters. I hope so. I think what you say about our pandemic situation uh, is really important that uh, just this has been a really strange time, even for those of us who uh, are not in great distress from uh, medical or economic circumstances or from uh, facing (coughs) racial injustice or, you know, all the things that are going on uh, just to be, um, kind of in quarantine for a year. It's just, I'm feeling it more and more as maybe because spring is coming, but it's just, it's odd. It's just so odd. And I think we have to be kind to ourselves and realize that we are, that we've been through something very strange and that it's not over yet, but we can see that it will be over at some point in the foreseeable future. Anyway, I just wanted to say that. And then also, uh, during this time, I've had a practice which I haven't followed as well as I'd like to. But you know, I have. When you asked it to think of somebody who was a who was a close friend or who was somebody who we resonate with, or I forget exactly how you put it, there there were like half a dozen or so uh, people who uh, I feel that way with, and I've been as a practice trying to. I'll call them somewhat regularly and just say hello and just talk for a little bit. And, and um, so, you know, how we take care of, of uh, the web of Kalyanamitra is, uh, is a challenge, is a practice. It's something that requires our intention and, and attention. And anyway, I just really appreciate everything you said. And, you know, I think that you're making a very good point, Tygen. You know, the, the person that I mentioned that kind of was saved my life as a teenager, she passed away about, um, gosh, it's been um, five years, I think, now. Um, she's about 13 years older than I am. And for almost, for when, we, when I was very young, we were in the same place. But for most of my adult life, all of my adult life, we didn't live anywhere near each other. And sometimes we didn't talk for a year or two. And then we would get on the phone and it was as if we just picked up the conversation from where it was before. And so, you know, those kinds of friendships are there, pandemic or no pandemic, right? Um, they, they uh, so I think you're really right about the picking up the phone. And, and you know, Tyke, and I just want to say, you know, you and I have kind of, you know, our lives have kind of gone like this at various times. But I think that when we first met each other, when I was, you know, probably late 20s at Green Gulch and you were living there, I think we recognized something in each other of this kind of 
passion for, you know, engaged Buddhism. And, and, and that's part of the reason that I'm here tonight, right? All those years later. Thank you for coming. Yeah, it's, that's, there's something about that. that uh, and I think it happens within Sangha, too, very much, that we recognize something in somebody else, or they recognize something in us. And what that is, is it's so mysterious. It's not necessarily, as you said, shared interests. It might be, but, you know, or we could find the shared interests. But, um, yeah, there's resonance. So I just, I want to, we have still, well, just a little bit of time, and I just want to, Ask if anybody else, maybe anybody who hasn't said anything yet, has any comments or responses or reflections. Uh, uh, it's just wonderful to have uh, Florence with us. And so uh, please. Hogetsu, thank you. Hello, Florence. It's nice to see you. I apologize for showing up late. The Doan forgot to ring the bell uh, during my zazen before your talk. <laughs> that Doan happened to be me. So, <laughs> spiritual friendship is a wonderful thing. So, thank you for talking about it. And, you know, I realized, I, I think I um, I had my timing wrong. I actually thought I was supposed to end it at um, 8.30. So I'm pleased to see that I was wrong and we had more time. I could have told more stories had I known. <laughs> but I also love, I've always found it very rich, both in person and over Zoom, to be in conversation with people in this sangha. So um, grateful for that opportunity, too. And you're muted again. Thank you. And you will be back. Yes. Uh, but maybe now we can formally close. Um, Wade, would you lead us with the four bodhisattva vows, please? I'm going to, maybe we don't need it, but I'm going to put it on the screen anyway. Beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it, beings are numberless. I vow to free them, delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them, dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them, Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it, beings are numberless. I vow to free them, delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them, dharma gates are boundless. 
I vow to enter them, Buddha's ways unsurpassable. I vow to realize it.